Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 383, The Death of King Edward. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Helena, Rebecca, and Sarah for signing up already. Christmas of 1065 would have been a grim affair. And as 1066 approached, the court was likely consumed with anxiety. The king was childless, and the throne was being eyed from all sides by foreign dynasties. And according to sources like William of Poitiers, the king had been terribly ill for quite some time. Poitiers tells us that his illness had become so severe in 1063 that the king had made preparations for succession believing that he was already on his deathbed. Now, of course, Poitiers also tells us that this succession plan was that England would go to Duke William of Normandy, which is a little suspicious for a bunch of reasons we've already gone over. But what is clear is that King Edward had been gravely ill for a long time, and the threat of what would happen when he died hung like a sword over the aristocracy of England. And if that wasn't bad enough, the political powerhouse of England, the House of Godwin, which, for better or worse, had steered the fortunes of the kingdom for about a half century, had been ripped asunder. And considering the degree of power and authority that this family had amassed, that meant that England was ripped asunder. The feud that was consuming the two eldest Godwinson brothers had become so vicious that it was now even being enshrined in poetry. And that's where I want to start today's episode, with the poems about this family. Because the story of 1066 is complex, and it has many different aspects. But central to much of what was happening here and what was to come was a story that is all too human and all too common. It's a story of deep family wounds, of resentment, of ambition, and of how a petty rivalry and a series of grudges can take down an entire family and even an entire kingdom. The Vita Edwardi, which is a key source on what happened with the Godwinsons, contains several poems on the rivalry between Tostig and Harold. And this rivalry, along with the feuding, is a puzzle. Our written sources are often vague on the details, if they mention them at all. And these poems provide a much-needed window into these events. Though, they themselves provide their own puzzles, which we must contend with as well. But if we are to know this period, we must know this feud. And thus, we must know the Vida Edwardi. And to begin with, we should probably start with what we know about how the Vita Edwardi came to be. It's widely believed by scholars that the Vita was likely commissioned by Queen Edith, and Edith no doubt had her own perspective on these events, and also on her brothers. In fact, when we look at accounts of her actions, Edith seems to have been quite fond of Tostig, and the record indicates that King Edward likely was fond of him as well. For example, if you remember back, Queen Edith supported Tostig in his rule over Northumbria. And this support went so far as to include some extremely unpopular law enforcement decisions. As such, it would be reasonable for us to assume that the Vida, if it was being commissioned by Queen Edith, would be a source that's friendly to Tostig. But Edith wasn't the person writing it. Another person was. And that person is anonymous. Historian Frank Barlow did make some guesses as to who it might have been, and it's a list that includes names like the famed monk Goskelin. But unfortunately, we don't know for sure. And that means we can't infer any sort of authorial perspective based on that person's life. However, we can infer their perspective from the text itself. And the text of the Vita is absolutely fascinating. Though, 
it is also incomplete. There are missing portions, including a chapter that likely focused on Godwin's children. But despite that suspiciously missing chapter, which probably did provide details regarding this feud, there still does remain some commentary regarding the feud in the form of poetry, which is peppered throughout the document. And this poetry accounts for some of the only written records of this conflict. And yet, for quite some time, historians tended to skip over the poems entirely, and instead engage with the non-poetic portions of the Vita. Ironically, many thought at the time that this was a more objective and reasoned way to approach the Vita, as if, by pretending the poetry wasn't there, the Vita would be magically transformed into a stable and usable source. But as we've discussed in previous episodes, this approach is deeply flawed, because he can't approach a source like a salad bar and only take the bits he like. The other parts are just as relevant to the analysis of the text, even if those parts feel more like artistic flourishes or riddles. Now, thankfully, beginning in the 1970s, that salad bar approach to the Vita was challenged, and scholars began to take a serious look at those poems. As such, I'm fortunate to have had access to a variety of analyses from respected scholars on the meanings of these poems. And it turns out, these poems are very important. Their placement in the text and the form in which they appear reflect that these poems are not just a bit of added flavor, but rather the author was trying to tell us something. Something that they wanted to convey through history but also something they might have wanted to hide from any reader who might not be so well-versed in classical and biblical stories. So it appears that the author of the Vita wanted to say one thing, but the person who commissioned the Vita to be written wanted to say another. And one thing to understand about the Vita Edwardi is that it is a deliberate work of literary art. It's not like the charters, where the main point is to record facts, usually facts about real estate. The Vita is written to tell a story, and the author of this Vita has deliberately organized the work in a way to tell a story, not just through the recitation of facts, but also through the literary structure that's being employed. As part of this construction, the Vita Edwardi begins each book with a poem, and these poems serve as a prologue for what's about to be discussed in the following chapter. They also take the form of a dialogue between the poet and a muse. Furthermore, the Vita itself is broken up into two books, and the books themselves take the form of doublets. They relate to each other and are similar, but they exist in conversation with each other, adding to and illuminating one another. And therefore, you can only understand one part by knowing the other. In this way, they're very much like the rhyme scheme and verse that appears in the poems. They're separate, but they're also linked. You only know one when you understand the other. And this is also the case with the use of poetry as prologue. In providing both poetry and prose, the author isn't just providing us with dual form. They are also giving us dual perspectives regarding the events discussed in the Vida. And this was very much deliberate. And we know this because the author actually draws our attention to it within a poetic introduction. Here's the muse speaking to the poet in a translated portion of one of the poems. Quote, Place in order by meaning of brotherly song, a full account of the brothers, alternating the rhyme of the work. And lest monotony should spoil the tune, set now and then your narrative in prose, so that with shifts the weary page revives and the order of history more lucidly appears. End quote. The author is saying that the use of classical references, biblical allusions, and verse aren't intended to be isolated from the narrative text, they're intended to be wrapped together. And if there is an aspect that the author felt was more important, it was the poetry, as the author makes clear when speaking with the muse. And the goal of this blending, of the alternating rhythms set forth in the document, is to illuminate the truth of the events contained in the Vita. 
And that was likely something of particular import to the anonymous author. Because when we look at the prose of the Vita, we see that the author was writing about these events as they were occurring. The author tells us this outright. Now, historians have debated whether or not the author is telling the truth here. And there are highly respected scholars on both sides of this debate. Figures like Frank Barlow and Sir Richard Southern take the author's word for it, and they marvel at the uniqueness of such a record. Whereas figures like Pauline Stafford argue that this was just a literary conceit, and actually, the text was written shortly after the events of 1066. As with much of this era, there's little about the Vita that isn't hotly debated among scholars. But for our purposes, know that it's extremely likely that this account was written either concurrently to these events or very soon thereafter. And as such, the text is of extreme importance to the record of this fateful period. And at every turn, the poetry that is interspersed with the prose adds depth to the work and further illuminates the story that the author wants us to know. In fact, the poetry is so important that the author makes a point by calling upon Cleo, the muse of history. In doing so, we're being explicitly told of the intent to link poetry to history. But it's actually more complex than that, because the portrayal of Cleo was modeled on Bothius's lady philosophy, and in doing so, the author is also linking this work to a debate from the classical era over the value of poetry, a debate that goes all the way back to Plato, who famously was opposed to poetry and saw it as largely harmful. But with this selection of the muse, and how that muse is presented, not to mention the way that poetry is introduced in the work itself, the author is saying that Plato got it wrong, and poetry is important. Actually, not just important. The author's main point is that it can bring truth to history. And thus, this author is part of a rising literary culture in Europe that was beginning to argue that poetry could convey more meaning and depth than prose was capable of. The author is practically screaming in the text for us to pay attention to these poems. And yet, for some reason, learned men have spent centuries deliberately paying attention to only the prose portion of the record, regardless of the fact that the author explicitly tells the reader that they shouldn't do that. And it wasn't until the 70s, nearly a thousand years after the author gave these clear instructions, that historians actually read the manual and followed the directions. But once they did, what the scholars found was fascinating. The poetry adds critical details to the events covered in the Vita and directly bears upon many of the debates that surrounded this document for centuries. For example, as the author discusses the reign of King Edward, the poetry heavily references Virgil and casts Edward's reign as a golden age. But it also indicates that this restoration of the West Saxon dynasty was only made possible through Godwin. Now, this could be the author building up to an ironic twist. Or it could be that at this point in the composition, the author could only guess at the ultimate outcome of these events. And this praise was an honest assessment of Godwin's value to the royal dynasty. It's hard to say, but it's clear that the poems are key for understanding the prose. However, the relationship between the prose and the poems is not always straightforward. Many times, the poems contrast with the prose in striking ways. These moments in the text convey a sense of tension and confused emotion regarding the events at hand. In one example, despite the praise of Godwin, the associated poem casts Godwin as bearing gifts, which is a clear reference to the Trojan horse. And in these moments, scholars have noticed a pattern. The harshest critiques, particularly when it comes to the House of Godwin, are found in the poetry. And those critiques are often buried under a heap of literary and religious references that only the most learned of the time would have understood. For example, in one part of the prose, we hear of King Edward's childlessness, but it's very careful to not lay any blame for that on Queen Edith nor does it associate the lack of an heir with the political crisis that was brewing in England. But when we look at the associated poetry, 
we get references to Aeneas's shield and Dido's lineage, which are both references to Virgil. And if you know your classics, as the author and learned people at the time would have, you'd know that in that story, shortly before Dido kills herself, she laments that she never bore Aeneas a son. And Virgil later returns to Dido in Book 4 and speaks further about her sorrow. Something else that learned people would have caught by this reference was the fact that Dido's brother slew her husband. So while the prose is noncommittal on the matter of the succession crisis, in the poetry we get these dense literary allusions that imply a deep sense of sorrow and interfamily conflict. In a very sneaky way, it seems that we're being informed that some may have blamed Edith for the lack of an heir. And we're being reminded that because she didn't bear any children, there can be no prophecy of illustrious descendants such as we find on Aeneas's shield. In essence, the poet is telling us that this is the end of the line and is also telling us why. And this sort of thing is all throughout the Vita. And I could easily spend half a year going through each and every line of this thing. It's wild how thick the illusions are in this document. Cleopatra, Caesar, Priam, damn near everyone of importance gets referenced in here at one point or another. But when we put it all together, the poetry gives us a consistent implication that it was Godwin and his sons who brought down the country. Which is a far cry from the prose where Godwin is presented as the father of the kingdom. And the reason why I'm bringing you this story about the Vita Edwardi and its mysterious author and why I'm doing it right now at the dawn of 1066, is because of what this author appears to tell us of the Godwinsons, of Tostig and Harold. And it appears on this subject, the author's viewpoint and its Patreon's viewpoint, likely Queen Edith, were directly at odds. And we can guess that because when discussing this subject, the poetry gets incredibly dense and extremely academic. For example... Towards the end of the first poem, we get references to the Roman poems Thebaid and Phrasalia. And here's the thing, the Thebaid centers around a conflict between brothers. And the Phrasalia is all about civil war. And the piece actually opens up with Romulus murdering his brother Remus. Why? Because the brothers couldn't bring themselves to share rule over Rome. Which, considering metaphors is not exactly subtle. But the way the author handled it was incredibly subtle. Because none of those specific lines are outright mentioned. And instead, the author buries them in cheeky poetic allusions that you would only catch if you were incredibly familiar with both works. Meaning that these metaphors condemning the Godwin sins for their feud were things that only the sharpest eyes in the monastery would catch. But the fact remains that right from the first poem, we're getting a damning assessment of both Godwin and the Godwinsons. They present the old Earl as a Greek bearing gifts, probably his sons. And those sons were locked in a feud which could end in murder. And considering the references to classical poetry about civil war, it seems that the author felt that this feud was placing England on the same path. It's a striking contrast to the much kinder and enthusiastic tone that we see in the prose. And then, in the second poem, things get really intense. It starts out with Godwin happy, and his daughter, Queen Edith, is praised for her worthiness. But then the poem gets a lot more oblique with its subject, and a lot more dark. Quote, Thus from your single fount, O paradise, you part in secret water for all lands. Four ample streams to stir the earth's recess and nourish the estate of men and beasts. Themselves they loudly praise, born from one womb, issue of various kind, unlike in birth, in flesh and voice, place, space, and time and motion. The one part mounts the skies to heaven twined and tends its racist hope in treetop nest. The other, gulping monster, seeks the depths, attacks its roots, and mouths the parent trunk, and holds until, as doomed, the breath of life creates a creature from a lifeless dam, and losing grip, pursues again its prey. O oh, happy world, if each would keep its course, and water its own lands, 
with pacts observed, as the celestial order has ordained. So the author is clearly talking about Godwin's other children, but at the same time, no one is being named. Instead, the author gives us breadcrumbs that, I presume, were clear enough for the people of the time to know who was being discussed. But who specifically are the Four Rivers? And is the author speaking about four children at all, or only two? They seem to be focused mostly on two. And in general, the author is focused on Harold and Tostig, so many scholars have assumed that that's who the author is speaking about. And I think that argument carries merit. But as for which brother is a gulping monster and which brother is heaven-twined, well, scholars have all kinds of opinions on that, because neither brother is easily recognizable in the poem. Some see the heaven-twined brother as Harold, and the gulping monster as Tostig. But others, like Barlow, argue that it's actually the other way around. And to support this, Barlow points to the sheer scale of material that's focused on Tostig and his merits that we find in the prose, when compared to Harold. The prose seems to be all about Tostig. Furthermore, later on in the prose, we get the fact that Harold was accused of starting the Northumbrian rebellion against Tostig, which certainly fits with a gulping monster attacking its roots. And interestingly, the Latin word that's used to describe the Northumbrian rebellion is the same word that's used to describe the chaos that's caused by the gulping monster. And Barlow points out that while Harold did rebut the accusation under oath, we know that Harold had a loose relationship with oaths. And surely that would have been something that the author would have been aware of. And it would also tie itself in with that comment about how pacts should be observed. Barlow further adds that the better brother tends its race's hope in treetop nest. To translate, the better brother has highborn children that are the hopes of England's future. And as such, Barlow thinks it's highly unlikely that the author was speaking about Edith Swanneck, who was Harold's first wife, or possibly his Danish wife, meaning essentially his concubine. On the other hand, Tostig was married to the half-sister of Count Baldwin V of Flanders, one of the most powerful figures in all of Europe, which certainly does sound like a treetop nest. So for Barlow, it seems clear that Tostig was the good guy in this poem. However, I think he might be wrong. And I think it's because he fails to have the full context of what he's analyzing. You see, since the poetry in the Vita was largely ignored until the 70s, Barlow was one of the rare voices looking at it. And good for him. But we should keep in mind that as he interprets the poetry and prose that's contained in the Vita, he's doing it as a trained historian, not as a specialist in ancient literature. And that may feel like an elitist nitpick, but hear me out. Think about it like this. Imagine yourself as a historian a thousand years in the future, and you come across the early 21st century phrase, winter is coming. Lacking any further context, you might say, well, as you can see, there are four seasons, and in the northern hemisphere, winter is the one where times are coldest and the least amount grows, so this is an assessment of where the speaker is in relation to the seasons. And that's true, but it's missing a lot. And thankfully, as a good historian, you consult a colleague who specializes in ancient literature. And they helpfully share with you that those are the words of House Stark in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And what they're saying is that a cataclysm is coming, and we must prepare for it. And often, when that phrase is employed, it's a reference to how, despite abundant knowledge of that impending cataclysm, those in power tend to flatly refuse to do anything and persecute anyone who warn about it. And suddenly, you, the good historian, know that this picture of the 2019 Davos Convention with the words winter is coming is making a commentary on politics. And this is the position that we find ourselves in with the poetry in the Vita Edwardi, and why experts like Elizabeth Tyler are so important and why I rely on her so heavily in this episode. And as we go on, I think you'll begin to see why it's unlikely that Tostig was the hero in this poetic condemnation. And instead, he was likely the gulping monster. 
and how the author thinks he holds much of the blame for the fall of England. Now, if we return to the poem, what leaps out to me is the way it ends. From the perspective of the poem, it seems quite clear that the brothers are both still alive and the author hopes that a peace will be found. This is a repeated theme, which is one of the pieces of evidence that suggests that the poem was indeed written contemporary to these events, and that this political crisis within the House of Godwin was something that was dominating the attention of, at the very least, the learned and powerful within England. Now, the following two sections also have poems, but they don't appear to relate to Harold and Tostig. But in the poem in the fifth section, the author returns to the brothers, and this includes an odd opening. Quote, and since the occasion offers, we wish, to the best of our small powers, to inform posterity about the life, character, and deeds of these two brothers. And we do not think our wish to do this unreasonable, both on account of the plan of the work, and also so that their posterity shall have models for imitation. End quote. Basically, the author is saying that he or she is going to make a point here, and so this account will be focused on providing us with details that will illustrate that point for posterity. It's refreshingly honest, but it's strange that it appears so late in the account, and it sits right before a section where the author starts working very hard in the prose to present Harold and Tostig as equals who could be compared and contrasted. But this form immediately starts to break down in the prose. Harold is being portrayed as more worthy to be king, but the text gives much more time and attention to Tostig, thus revealing that Tostig was the favorite, at the very least the favorite of the patron, probably Queen Edith. Looking at this situation, literary scholar Elizabeth Tyler came to the conclusion that this strange contradiction and the odd warning that began the section was the author signaling to the reader that this gap between form and content is a reflection of a gap between the ideal that's being presented and the reality that the author knew to be actually true. Basically, the author is trying to tell the reader, hey, I'm supposed to tell you that Harold and Tostic were equals, but they weren't. And when we get to the poetry, we find some worrying signs. First, the author has abandoned their muse and is now calling upon ill fortune, discordant vice, holy faith, and Mary. So, not good. And then, when we read the poem, we're given signs of hope, which are then immediately dashed. We're told of two brothers united by a pact of peace, who hold up the English nation. These men are compared to oak trees, and Hercules, and Atlas, and Mercury, and, not wanting to leave Christianity out of this, angels. But then suddenly, we're told of the pyres of Thebes, which burned the bodies of the feuding brothers, Antiochus and Polynices. And the poet asks why fortune had been troubling Harold and Tostig so much, which was a pretty clear warning of where this feud could lead Harold and Tostig if it didn't end. Next, the author turns to Cain and Abel and condemns familial murder, which again, is a pretty clear warning. Then we're given a reference to the House of Atreus, and that's where things get really weird. You see, by including the House of Atreus, the author is upping the game. Now we're not talking just about kin slaying, we're talking about kin eating. The story of the House of Atreus has to do with the literal cannibalism of family members. In this classic myth, Atreus ruled as a king, and his exiled brother, Theestes, hated him for it. But Atreus, despite being king, was also paranoid, and he started to worry that his wife had been cheating on him, and that his sons were actually Theestes' sons. And so, Atreus did the obvious kingly thing. He invited his brother back into the kingdom, and before he did so, he murdered his sons and had them prepared as a meal, and then served it to his brother. Every time I read Greek myths, I wonder if the Greeks were okay. But anyway, in the poem in the Vita, when they're talking about this myth, Tostig and Harold's roles are reversed. Harold is linked to the exiled brother, and Tostig 
is linked to the king who feeds his brother his poor sons. Now, this could be a simple mistake on the part of the author. It's entirely possible, especially since the story of the House of Atreus wasn't exactly well-known during this period. However, there's a story about Tostig that gives us pause. And this story comes from Henry of Huntingdon, who wrote it down about 60 years later. In it, we're told that in the year 1063, Tostig became enraged when he learned that Harold was favored by King Edward. And so, according to Henry, and Henry alone, he went to Hereford, where the king was soon expected to dine with Harold. And there, Tostig, quote, dismembered all his brother's servants and put a human leg, head, or arm into each vessel for wine, mead, ale, spiced wine, morat, and cider, end quote. And then, to make sure that only his brother would be chowing down on Unferth, he basically told the king not to eat dinner, saying he'd only find salted food there. F***ing yikes. Now, we have no idea where the story came from and how Henry heard it. Nor do we know if it was simply his own invention or something that others heard as well, but didn't write down. The whole thing is a mystery. But two references linking Tostig to revenge cannibalism are two more references than you'd expect to find. And it's possible that the poem here, by reversing the identities the brothers were connected to, was referencing the rumors of cannibalism that may have been surrounding Tostig for a couple years before his exile. But even if it wasn't a reference to whatever source Henry of Huntington had, and Henry was just spicing up his account for the fun of it, by reversing the identities in this poem, in connection with this classical myth, the author is, at the very least, providing a level of criticism that we don't see in the prose. Because in classical writings, cannibalism was something that was repeatedly associated with tyrants. And considering the rebellion in Northumbria against Tostig's rule and his numerous feuds, it's possible that the author was using poetry to tell a learned reader that, while the prose was trying to make a case for Tostig, the reality was different, and he was a tyrant. And here's where the poem gets even more brutal. Atreus and Thiestes aren't the only cannibals in that myth. Their father, Pelops, was fed to the gods by their grandfather, Tantalus. In the story, all the gods refused, except for Ceres, who was distracted. But in the Vita's retelling, Ceres is replaced by Concord, who's a figure that's associated with Queen Edith. But get this, in the Vita's retelling, Concord doesn't eat. So the author goes out of their way to portray a multi-generational cannibalism story and link the Godwin dynasty to it, associating the family with classical tropes of tyranny and unfitness for rule. However, the author then carefully reworks the myth so that the figure associated with Queen Edith remains guilt-free. Once again, in the poetry, the author is screaming from the rafters that Tostig is unfit to rule. And possibly, so are all of the Godwins, with the exception of Queen Edith. And then the author seems to get a bit nervous about how far from Christian orthodoxy the poetry had strayed, and how much it relied on pagan myths. And so the author suddenly refers to the myths as errors and fictions without fact. We're told they're just Greek trifles. But then, the author adds that they have lessons that earn our trust, and how the author believes, quote, that every literature of the world teaches us, that the whole world speaks as with one tongue, and that each and every man educates us, end quote. And then following that defensive inclusion, the author concludes the poem by calling upon Mary, Faith, and Concord to bring England to peace. And remember, Concord is associated with Queen Edith. It seems quite clear here that the Vita at this point is contemporary, and the author of the poem is pleading with both pagan and Christian entities to intercede and avoid the catastrophe that this brotherly feud was threatening to bring about. And while the prose does seem to side with Tostig, the poetry condemns him, and quite possibly 
also Godwin, and most of the Godwin dynasty. Then we have a sixth poem. And this one focuses upon an alliance between Tostig and Harold, which we're told bestows England with peace. And so Edward is able to return to his work on Westminster Abbey and Edith to her work on Wilton Abbey. In this poem, Edith is portrayed as a mother to nuns, which was a not-so-subtle comment on the childlessness of the royal couple and the succession crisis that was looming. Now, neither the sixth poem nor the associated prose tells us what this treaty between the brothers was, nor how it was brokered. Presumably, it was the result of some serious political effort by someone, though who it was and how the brothers were brought to the table is unclear. One thing I find interesting, though, is that the Vita is keen to praise it and speak about how it was bringing peace to England. And as such, I wouldn't be surprised if this was some sort of effort on the part of the Vita's likely patron, Queen Edith. That certainly would make the most sense, since Edith was likely looking to ensure that she would remain in a position of power in the event of her husband's death. And her brothers would provide the surest path to that end. But... Only if they would stop f***ing fighting. And then we reach the seventh and final section of the Vita Edwardi. And there's no poem. None. And that's striking, considering how the author opened up this whole thing, saying, Hey, you need to read my poems, my dude. All the important stuff is in the poetry which is then followed by a series of scathing poems that undercuts a lot of what's being said in the prose. And so it's weird that when we reach the end, all of that stops. But then we look at the prose, and it's pretty easy to see why. The treaty between Harold and Tostig had collapsed, and their conflict had burst out of courtly intrigue and onto the battlefield. Northumbria was in an armed rebellion against Tostig, and there are rumors and accusations that Harold himself was behind it. Regardless of the truth of these accusations, this feud between the brothers was worse than ever, and with armed forces now in the field, the conflict had become what the author feared most, a civil war. And the content of Section 7 is full of the same language of Roman and Greek legends which, up until this point, had stayed tucked into cheeky poems. But now it was all out in the open. Now the crisis wasn't a fear. It was a reality that everyone could see. And as such, there was no need for a subtle framework to discuss it within polite society. The capital had been breached. The fears were proven valid. The warnings were vindicated. And now we can just openly talk about it. And so in this seventh section of the Vida, the tone completely changes. There are no more subtle poetic allusions. And the author just tells us right in the middle of the prose who is at fault for this chaos. Harold, Tostig, and King Edward. Though, ever mindful for who was paying for this document, the author also reminds us who wasn't at fault for any of it. Queen Edith. Quote, The queen was, on the one hand, confounded by the quarrel of the brothers, and on the other hand, bereft of all support by the powerlessness of her husband, the king. And when her counsels came to naught, and by God's grace, she shone above all in counsel if she were heard. She plainly showed her foreboding of future evils by tears. And when she wept inconsolably, the whole palace went into mourning. For when misfortunes had attacked them in the past, she always stood as a defense, and had both repelled all the hostile forces within her powerful counsels, and also cheered the king and his retinue. Now, however... When, owning to sin, things had turned against them, all men deduced future disasters from the signs of the present. End quote. In short, no one's listening to Edith, and now everything's going to shit. And we already know what follows here. Harold ends up having a rather terrible holiday in Normandy that everyone, except for William, was upset about. Northumbria rebels against Tostig, and the Vida indicates that Harold doesn't do all that much to help his brother which is at odds with the Chronicle, by the way, which tells us that Harold tried to help Tostig but failed. 
Eventually, Edward decides to put down the rebels by force, but is unable to muster the men to do it, and so Tostig is exiled, and he blames Harold for it. Northumbria is given to Morcar, the brother of Earl Edwin of Mercia, and suddenly the Mercian dynasty is governing about as much territory as the Godwinsons. And the Vita adds a little more. The document implies that Harold had long desired the throne and ruthlessly removed any obstacle that stood in the way of that goal. It also tells us that King Edward was desperate to save Tostig from exile and that when he couldn't do so, the king fell ill and never recovered from the shock. Now, I have serious doubts that Tostig's exile was the cause of the king's decline in health. Not the least of which because we have records that indicate that Edward had been ill for years. But the fact that this document connects these events and speaks of Harold in tones that are only echoed in Norman writers who are trying to backdate a justification for invasion, well, that suggests that the patron of this document, and possibly the author as well, definitely felt like the wrong brother came out on top and that the patron had an axe to grind with Harold. And that's a surprising shift in tone coming out of the prose. And it might explain why the author stopped churning out poetic diss tracks. Because considering the staunch support, or at least neutrality, of the prose up to this point, this shift in tone in section 7, which comes almost certainly from Edith herself, at a time when the family probably needed the most ideological support, is genuinely puzzling. This does not feel particularly strategic. It feels more like someone's just really, really angry. And that makes you wonder, what the hell happened to turn the brother's most ardent supporter in court against them? Which brings us back to Christmas of 1065. King Edward and Queen Edith were at court. And according to the Doomsday Book, in addition to their traditional ceremonial duties for Christmas... The king was also enforcing judgments. So this was a busy time. And Westminster Abbey, which the king had been overseeing the construction of, was due to be consecrated in just a few days. So he also had that to look forward to. However, if the Vita is any indication, there was little else to be pleased about. The couple remained childless. The threat of foreign powers seeking the throne was a constant worry. The king's health was terrible and possibly declining. The peace between Harold and Tostig had been torn to shreds. And Tostig was exiled. And if the text and subtext of the Vita can be believed, this was the opposite of what the king and the queen wanted. Tostig appears to have been the royal favorite. And so, the Christmas season of 1065 was likely anything but merry for the royal couple. However... They had jobs to do and duties to attend to. And interestingly, they were attending to those duties from Westminster, not the traditional location of Gloucester. Presumably, this was so the king could be near his new abbey, but also probably because he was too ill to hunt. But despite the location change, this Christmas court was quite a busy one. Now, our documents for this occasion are poor. And unfortunately, while we do have two charters from this gathering, they're forgeries, so we can't trust them. As such, our insight of who is attending is limited. However, given the impending consecration of the Abbey, along with the king's failing health, it's likely that everybody who was anybody made an effort to be there. So we can expect that Westminster was packed with powerful nobles, church authorities, and various magnates from the kingdom. And then, on Christmas Eve, the king fell ill, possibly suffering some sort of stroke. Fortunately, he recovered enough on Christmas Day to attend to his duties. There was a service in the abbey, a feast, all the things that you'd expect to see for a Christmas celebration. But on the following day, Boxing Day, the king, growing ever more weakened, retired to his bedchamber. Two days later, on Wednesday, the 28th of December, King Edward was due to attend the consecration of the Collegiate Church of St. Peter, which we now know as Westminster Abbey. But Edward was too ill. 
and so the ceremony was carried out in his absence. For a week, the king drifted in and out of consciousness. The records we have tell us that he would sometimes become terribly restless and agitated in his sleep. And in his waking moments, he would sometimes suffer from delirium. They are at the end stage now. The most powerful and closest advisors of the king gathered in his chambers. Accounts provide differing views of these last moments, but it appears that Queen Edith, Earl Harold Godwinson, Robert Fitzwimarch, who was kin to both the king and also Duke William of Normandy, and Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury were among those present. The Vita tells us that towards the end, Edward woke from his coma and, speaking with a strong voice, ordered his household to be assembled. He told the assembled nobility and churchmen that he had a vision. In this vision, he met with two Norman monks he had once known, but who were now long dead. These monks told him that the nobility, the magnates, and the clergy of England were servants of the devil, and that, a year and a day after Edward's death, devils would rip through England with fire, sword, and all the horrors of war, and that Edward could not halt this damnation because the people of England would not repent. The monks told the king that the punishment would only end when a green tree in full leaf cut down halfway up its trunk, with its top taking three furlongs away, was rejoined by its own efforts through rising sap, and once again bore fruit and leaves. Only when that happens would God's anger against England be sated. So, uh, I guess we shouldn't be holding our breath. Now, the Vita tells us that Queen Edith believed her husband's vision. But Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, who the Vita portrays as chief among those who were in league with the devil in pursuit of wealth and power, told Earl Harold that this really wasn't a prophecy. The king was simply sick and senile. As the queen and assembled courtiers wept, the Vita tells us that Edward said, May God repay my wife for her dutiful and loving service. For she has certainly been a devoted servant to me and has always been at my side like a beloved daughter. May God's mercy reward her with eternal joy in heaven. Now, like much of this account, I get the sense that the Vita is working really hard to do a solid for Queen Edith with these deathbed statements. Though, at the same time, I can't help but think that we might have a backhanded compliment with that whole like a beloved daughter thing. After this prayer for his wife, King Edward offered Harold his hand, and he said, I commend this woman and all the kingdom to your protection. Remember that she is your lady and sister, and serve her faithfully and honor her as such for all the days of her life. Do not take away from her any honor that I have granted her. All in all, I gotta say, that's a pretty clear set of commands coming from someone who's been in a coma for about a week and is handing out prophecies of impending apocalypse that he heard from a couple dead monks. But as luck would have it, what he had to say was exactly what Edith probably wanted to hear. And Harold, too, for that matter. Though that whole faithful service and retention of all honors for Edith thing might have rankled him a bit. Next, we're told Edward gave Harold command of all of his servants and vassals and asked that any who did not wish to serve under him be granted safe passage, along with all they'd acquired while serving the crown. Finally, he gave instructions of specifically where in Westminster Abbey he wished to be buried. And after all of this, Edward was given the last rites. And on either the 4th or 5th of January, King Edward died. The Vita tells us that he had died from, quote, the sickness of mind, end quote. Scholars have taken this to mean that he was likely taken down by some form of stroke. King Edward, who would later become known as Edward the Confessor, was buried in Westminster Abbey, according to his wishes, on the following day, January 6th of 1066. The atmosphere of court during this time between his death and his burial must have been stuffed with dread and anticipation. The king had died, 
as everyone feared, without a clear heir. Now granted, the Vita makes a strenuous case that there was an heir, as it tells us that the king had made a deathbed bequest. And while the language of the Vita is clearly self-serving, and more than a little weird considering that it involves frigging prophecies, it is possible that King Edward at that last moment did make this deathbed pronouncement. And the fact that the Vita appears to have had mixed feelings about Harold at this point, the inclusion of a clear, unambiguous bequest, and one that couldn't be overridden since it was literally on the king's deathbed, does seem like a mark in the favor of the king's bequest actually happening. On the other hand, we can't forget who the likely patron of this document was and how the record repeatedly implies that Edith had been tirelessly working to ensure that one of her brothers would inherit the throne, as that was the best path for her remaining in a position of power. And the fact was that that bequest did come along with a command that Harold must keep Edith in exactly the same position with the same honors, meaning she must stay a queen and she must be allowed to keep doing queen shit. So that does make it sound a little bit fishy. But don't forget who else was in the room. You have Edith, who later retires to Normandy. And you also have Robert Fitzwimarsh, a relative and ally of Duke William of Normandy. And one has to imagine that if this entire scene was a complete fabrication and absolutely no deathbed bequest took place then either one of them would have been able to tell William if they wanted to. Furthermore, even Duke William's own hype man, William of Poitiers, admits that King Edward made a deathbed bequest to Harold. In fact, Poitiers admits it twice. And there's also the fact that when we look at records and accounts from this period, we also have claims that Edward promised England to Duke William and another claim that Edward had promised England to King Swain of Denmark. And so assuming that those accounts are actually based in fact, it's not exactly out of character for King Edward to promise the kingdom to the person he's chatting with. So I'm inclined to believe that something like this actually did in fact happen. Though, considering the king was apparently suffering from strokes and delirium, it was probably a bit more mumbly and less heroic than the tale that's told in the Vita. But, even if it did happen, this was still a tricky situation. Because despite the alleged promise, the fact was that England wasn't Edward's to give away. Bequests did not make someone a king of England. The Witan did. And the truth was, there remained a valid claimant to the throne. And he was a claimant that was at least as valid, if not more valid, then an earl whose main claim was that his sister was married to the king, and then the king named him as a successor, while also muttering prophecies and stuff. And while the Vita ignores this claimant, as do all the other sources, the fact was that Edgar Atheling, the son of Edward the Exile, and King Edward's closest male relative on the royal line, was apparently living at the royal court while this whole thing was going on. And while he was only 14 years old, the fact was, England has had teenage kings before. However, I'm sure people did probably still remember how the reign of the last young king of England, Edward the Martyr, had gone. And I'm sure at least a few people also remembered how an earlier teen king, Edwig, had skipped his coronation party to have a three-way. So Edgar might not have been a particularly attractive option for the Witan. At least not yet. And that might be why the wording of the king's bequest was a bit muddy. Because Edward didn't name Harold his heir. He commended the kingdom to Harold's protection. And protecting the kingdom was something that Harold had been doing for quite some time as the king's chief counselor. And before Harold was doing it, his father Godwin had been. Not only that... But there are records of Godwin acting as regent in the time between Hartha Canute's death and Edward's coronation. So was the plan for Harold to protect the kingdom for now? And then have Edgar reign once he was a bit older and less likely to skip affairs of state to take part in a mother-daughter tryst? It's hard to say. 
but the pressure was on. And among the things that the assembled nobility was concerned with was the issue of presenting a united front. A kingdom that could quickly and unambiguously rally around a successor, especially in a situation like this, would signal that it was united and could weather any storm. A quick election, while the king's body was still warm, wasn't unseemly. To the contrary, it was a good omen in a time where the kingdom desperately needed one. And Harold was English, unlike Edgar. Moreover, the nobility knew him, had experienced his style of rule, and it appears that most everyone either liked him or at least accepted him. You know, except for Tostig. In fact, Harold seems to have been so popular that no one left court when the king asked him to take them into his service. There's no record of anyone leaving power. And that was rare. I mean, it happened in the past with previous monarchs like Canute. And this might have been because Harold's style of governance probably looked like a breath of fresh air after the decades under Edward. King Edward, despite his great branding, was moody, quick to anger, held grudges, given to whims, would sometimes order the destruction of entire towns, and he had an air of self-righteousness to him that would have got on anybody's nerves. Meanwhile, by contrast, the picture we're given of Harold is of a friendly guy who was charming and easygoing. You know, unless he was at war. But even there, the nobility would have seen something that they liked, because Harold was battle-tested, quick to act, apparently fearless, and he had a history of victory. So all of these were qualities that would have been attractive to the nobility, especially since storms were on the horizon. So regardless of what Edward might have intended when he commended the kingdom to Harold's protection, the nobility heard what they wanted to hear. Harold was nominated by the king to be next in line. And honestly, they probably wanted him to take the throne regardless of whether or not Edward had a deathbed speech. That speech just made things easier. The timing was a bit hectic, though. Generally, coronations happened during one of the major religious celebrations, and the king had either died late on the 4th or on the 5th of January. And January 6th was the Epiphany. So there may have been a concern that if they didn't move quickly enough, they'd have to wait for another suitable day, probably Easter, before the bishops would agree to the ceremony. And so, as Edward was buried at Westminster Abbey on the morning of January 6th, the Witan had already made its decision. And in the afternoon, on that very same day, at that very same abbey, as Edward's body lay entombed nearby, Harold Godwinson was consecrated as King Harold II of England. The ceremony was done quickly and was likely hastily arranged, but the form and substance was ancient and well-known. Furthermore, this was something that was anticipated in one form or another, and so despite the quick timeline, all the proper rites and rituals were followed. Harold was anointed, he was crowned, he promised to bring peace to his people, justice and mercy. He swore to defend his people and the church, and he ceremonially assumed the regalia and mantle of rule. But it all happened quickly. So quickly, in fact, that those in the north weren't even aware that King Edward had died and that now there was a new king. But by the end of the afternoon, it was done. This dynasty, who had once been cast out of power by King Athelred as traitors, this dynasty whose grandfather had once turned to piracy. Well now, this dynasty, through generations of work started by Godwin and carried on by his children, was ruling England. And if we trust the Vida, and if Queen Edith was truly the patron of this document, Edith had spent unknown years working towards this exact moment. It was her triumph. Behind the scenes, in the halls of power, she had been working relentlessly to support her brothers. And simultaneously, she had been ensuring that with the Vida Edwardi, there would be a popular story of how it was the Godwinsons who had long been providing the kingdom with safety and security, 
thereby easing the path to the throne regardless of the rules of succession. And it had all paid off. A Godwinson, Harold Godwinson, was king. And he immediately sidelined his sister. Edith had been an important and likely the most important advisor to the king for decades. But now this new king, her own brother, apparently had no interest in her advice. And it wasn't long after this betrayal that section seven of the Vida was penned. And suddenly, the author doesn't seem to feel the need to hide the condemnations behind poetry. This new king, for all his charm, certainly had a gift for making enemies. Welcome to 1066.